Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. You know, one of the things I encounter quite often when I travel and speak are uh, people who have loved ones who are either in deconstruction or they have all the way deconstructed out of Christianity. And in many cases, there are strained relationships. In some cases, there are broken relationships where the deconstructed loved one has deemed the Christian toxic because of their beliefs and then um, either, you know, won't let them see their the grandkids or, or just have strained relationships. And so it's something that's really on my heart. In fact, uh, my co-author Tim Barnett of Red Pen Logic and I have just finished writing a book on deconstruction that's going to be coming out in January. And that is one of the things that was really heavy on our hearts as we wrote this book was to help people who have loved ones in deconstruction. And so recently at a conference, a man walked up to me and gave me this piece of paper right here. And in his case, he still has a relationship with his son who has deconstructed out of the faith. But his son wrote him a letter and basically said, these are my biggest issues with Christianity. And so this man handed this to me and he said, please use this however uh, you want to, to maybe help other people with some of the issues. And as I read through the letter, and I'm going to read it in a moment, what I discovered is that this really nails what Tim and I encountered in our research as many of the reasons people deconstruct and in the way that they're thinking about certain things. So what I want to do today is read through some of these points, maybe give a perspective on how uh, a conversation might go if you if you were to talk about some of these points, and maybe to help you. I know there's probably many people watching and listening today who have loved ones in deconstruction, and you're you're feeling a little bit um, anxious about it. You are not you don't want to say the wrong thing. And so we're going to talk about that today. I also hope to leave some time at the end for some questions. So if you have a question and you're watching live on YouTube, you can write the word question in all caps or just put a big capital Q there. And when we get to the questions, I'll be able to see your question more easily. So we're going to get to all of that in just a moment. But it's been a couple of weeks. So if you missed the last episode, which was two weeks ago, I was in California helping my mom. I was helping take care of her. She had encountered some unexpected health issues. But I just wanted to report that she is doing great. Thank you so much to everyone who prayed and who kept us in your thoughts and prayers. My mom is getting stronger every day. She's going to be totally fine. She's doing great. So thanks again for those prayers. I appreciate that so much. I want to let you know if you have been listening to the Unshaken Faith podcast, we are actually taking a little sabbatical over the summer. So there won't be any new episodes of the Unshaken Faith podcast until the fall. But now is a great time. If you have not subscribed to the Unshaken Faith podcast, now is a great time because when you subscribe, you will be notified when we release that first episode of our second season that will happen in the fall. The Unshaken Faith podcast is my second podcast that I do with my friend, Natasha Crane. And it's a little different than this one. If you're a regular listener of the Elisa Childers podcast, you know we dig deep into particular topics as they pertain to historic Christianity and progressive Christianity. We go deep, take about an hour or so. But the Unshaken Faith podcast are more bite-sized pieces, 15 minutes, weekly episodes on more cultural topics. So we're not diving as deep into the theology and into the uh, arguments for and against uh, certain things that we encounter as Christians. 
Christians, but we're talking about cultural stuff. So that's a really great podcast for you to subscribe to now so that you'll know when that first episode of the second season comes out. It's also connected to our Unshaken Conference, and we've already done two. And I want to thank everybody who came out to Chino Hills. It was such a great time. Of course, it was Frank Turek, Natasha Crane, and myself helping to equip Christians to live their faith boldly in this chaotic culture. And so many of you came out. It was great to see you there. We've got two more dates coming up soon. September 23rd is going to be in Tucson. And then we have November 4th will be Nashville. You can already register, buy tickets for those events going going to unshakenconference.com. So go ahead and register for those today. Would love to see you come out for Tucson and for Nashville. I also wanted to let you know, if you're not following along with us on Instagram uh, or Facebook. I am not on Twitter, but you can follow along on Instagram. Occasionally, I'll do exclusive live streams on Instagram. We share a lot of really good content on Instagram and also on Facebook. And speaking of Facebook, today, as this is going out live, this is June 4th. Tomorrow, June 5th, we are going to start uh, a new study in our Elisa Childers book club on Facebook. So if you're not a part of that, but you want to jump in on this new study, we're going to be reading through the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's such a valuable resource, just getting the right tools to be able to interpret the Bible properly. And so we're going to jump into that tomorrow, but we're going to leave the group open for new members for the the whole week. So you can jump in anytime this week, uh, starting June 5th, and that's tomorrow, Monday, June 5th. So if you want to do that, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club, and we'd love to have you join us for that new study. All right, so let's get into our topic for today, which is deconstruction. I'd love, before I read this letter from this deconstructed son, I would love to give a few thoughts about deconstruction. It's a really tough topic to think through and to talk about for a lot of reasons. Uh, The first reason, of course, being because it affects people so personally. When someone is in deconstruction, it is a very deep thing they're going through. It can be very scary. It can be destabilizing. Um, It can also be scary and destabilizing for their friends and their loved ones. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes relationships become strained. And so I think it might be helpful for us to define the word first. I've talked about deconstruction a lot, of course, on this podcast. But as I've studied it and as we've been writing this book that's coming out in January, um, my thoughts on it have evolved a little bit. And one of those uh, thoughts that has evolved a little bit is back when I wrote my first book, Another Gospel, where I described my own faith crisis, where I basically just my faith was unraveling. I came up to the edge of agnosticism, and it was a really painful, difficult time. When I wrote the book, Another Gospel, the best word I had to describe what I'd been through was deconstruction. But I actually don't use that word anymore to describe what I went through, because as I studied deconstruction, as it manifests on social media, and as it's connected to its philosophical roots, I realized that it was a bit of a different thing that was going on with me. And I'll explain why in just a moment. And it all comes down to what the definition of deconstruction actually is. So if you have been following deconstruction conversations online, you will see that people are defining that word in almost as if you talk to 10 people about what it is, you probably will get 10 different definitions of what deconstruction 
actually is. So for someone, they might be rethinking the eschatology they grew up with. Maybe they were raised to believe that the rapture was going to happen at this time, and now they're doing a deep dive Bible study, and they realize, hey, I don't think that my faith tradition got that right, and I want to adjust my theological beliefs to the Bible. And so they might say, well, I'm deconstructing my eschatology. I'm even deconstructing my theology. And to that, I would say, I think that's really important that we do rethink all of our positions, make sure they line up with the Bible, make sure they line up with reality. But after my research, I wouldn't use the word deconstruction to describe that process. Now, someone else might be experiencing some profound doubts about what they've believed all their life. Maybe they're thinking, gosh, why do I believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Maybe maybe I need to investigate when people are talking about contradictions in the Bible or they're talking about errors in the transmission of the biblical text. I need to dig in and find information on that to find out if I actually think that's even true. And they might refer to what they're going through as deconstruction, maybe experiencing some profound doubt. And to that, I would say, I think it's really healthy and important for Christians to engage with our doubts. I don't think we should stuff those things down. I think that we should investigate the evidence and follow the evidence where it leads. And yet, at the same time, I still wouldn't use the word deconstruction to describe even a really painful process of going through doubt. Now, you might ask another person, what does deconstruction mean? And they might see it as a process of completely uh, unraveling their faith and saying, I'm going to start with a completely clean slate, and I am going to form my beliefs from the ground up based on reality, based on what's true. I'm going to follow truth. And even in that case, I wouldn't call that deconstruction. And here's why. Because as I've studied deconstruction, again, as it manifests online and as it's connected to its philosophical roots, what I have found is that deconstruction is really not a process that's based on truth. It's actually not based on biblical authority at all. In fact, in the deconstruction spaces online, if you were to go into those spaces and say, hey, I'm in deconstruction, but I'm keeping the Bible as my standard for truth and my authority— there, there's even posts in that in that space that would say you're not doing it right. You got to go back to the beginning and start over. That's not deconstruction. In fact, they'll they'll mock Christians and even Christian leaders who use the word deconstruction uh, in that sort of a way. So it's really only some evangelical leaders who I think are well intentioned that might use the word deconstruction in a positive way. Like, man, engage your doubts, ask the hard questions, press hard on your faith, um, and then they're calling that deconstruction. And I would say, yes, ask the hard questions, press hard on your faith, walk through your doubts, uh, but I wouldn't call it deconstruction unless you have— um, not unless you're not seeking objective truth anymore, but you're seeking to put together something that fits for you, that you think works for you. And that's really what deconstruction seems to be. Um, it seems to be a very postmodern methodology. And here's what I mean by that. Postmodernism is marked by, I would say, a hyper-skepticism, but also a rejection of the idea that if objective truth exists, it can't be known, especially when it comes to the areas of morality and religion. So whereas most people don't walk around as if relativism is true, 
in every area. In other words, most people don't live as if truth is just relative to each person's perspective when it comes to things like mathematics or banking or stopping at red lights and things like that. But what our culture has done is relegate the categories of religion and morality to the category of more of a subjective or relative type of approach to truth. So in other words, when most people think about religion, when most people in the world, in the culture at large, think about what we should and shouldn't do, what we ought or ought not do, or what we might believe about God or religion— they're not approaching it as if there's one objective reality or one grand meta narrative to be discovered. Uh, in fact, most people don't really, in, in this postmodern culture, most people don't really even believe that that type of truth can even be known. And so because of that, there is a hyper-skepticism. There's, there's a need to want to deconstruct every sort of claim to know this grand narrative of the world and what's objectively true about these things. And so if we put ourselves in those shoes for a moment, in the mind of a postmodern person, if they don't believe that objective truth can be known— when it comes to real, uh, religion and morality, then when the Christian comes along saying, hey, hell is a real place. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And for every, you, know, you, have to you have to place trust in Jesus to be saved. And if you don't, you're not saved, right? These are, these are the kinds of claims that if somebody doesn't even think you can know these things, they're not going to be engaging with your argument. They're going to be asking why would you even be saying such things? So there's there's this hyper-skepticism of someone's motivation. So therefore, those kinds of claims are seen as power grabs because if you can't even know those things, then you must just be trying to control people with fear. You must just be trying to prop up some kind of oppressive institution or you're protecting the system or something like that. So uh, deconstruction is in my view and how and this is in the book the definition we kind of argue for is that it's a postmodern type of process because there's no biblical command to you know trust in Jesus and then get baptized and then deconstruct right that it's just it's like this new thing that that's come around and it's i think it's flowing out of the postmodern philosophy that gained steam in the 60s through people like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and so deconstruction, as I'm talking about it, I know I just want this to be so clear. When I talk about deconstruction, I'm not talking about a youth group kid who comes home from camp and says, hey, I'm in deconstruction because I think maybe I disagree with my parents about uh, predestination or women in ministry or something like that. I think that's wonderful. I think everybody needs to make sure that our theological positions line up with the Bible. But I, again, wouldn't call that deconstruction. So deconstruction as it manifests online, and, and, and many deconstructionists will say this, this is about removing toxic beliefs, beliefs that, that I think are oppressive to me, and it's not based on an objective truth. Um, and so uh, one little example about why I think that's a dangerous method, okay? Uh, if we are just trusting our own internal moral compasses, well, first of all, we're assuming that what we find inside of our own hearts is actually going to be something good, right? And as Christians, we we know that there actually is something broken in us. There's something—it's called fallen nature. We have a sin nature that we inherited. And so we're not always going to have it right what— uh, is going to be good for us or bad for us. And an example I used in my book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, 
was my son. So my son, when he was very young, he had to go to the dentist and have a cavity drilled. And when uh, when he did that, um, he was he was so young and he had sensory issues with his hearing that I tried to explain to him what was going to happen, but I knew he didn't quite understand. So when he was sitting in the dentist chair and the drill is going and it's loud and the dentist has his hands in his mouth and there's probably some discomfort, maybe even moments of pain, my son was looking at me in the dentist chair and everything inside of me wanted to just pull him up out of that chair and just leave and say, we're not doing this. This is harmful. It's not going to happen. But I, as his mother, have more information about what is actually good for him. Because I'm sure in that moment, if it were up to him, he would say, this is toxic. This is harmful to me. This is something that is not not leading me toward wholeness or healing. And yet, I know that if we don't deal with the cavity, it could burrow into the bone. It could cause a host of health problems that would cause him more pain in the future. And so I, as his mom, know that it's worth the momentary discomfort and even maybe pain to root out the problem so that he doesn't have greater pain later. And I just think about God that way. If I, as my son's mom, have more information than he does, how much more information does God have when God gives commands to us that might feel harmful to us or might feel like, man, that does not make me comfortable. That is not something I want to do. And all of us as Christians, by the way, have to deal with those things. We all have the Holy Spirit who's convicting us of our sin and we're having to repent and turn from those things every day in our process of sanctification. So that's uh, just a few words on deconstruction. I also want to say that most of the time, the deconstruction hashtag, <coughs> excuse me, is used in conjunction with the exvangelical hashtag. And I want to talk about that word exvangelical and evangelical for a moment. So the word evangelical is difficult. And here's why. There's really no real clear-cut definition of what evangelical actually is. Most people in deconstruction are leaving what they would call evangelicalism. And then in some cases, you, it's very obvious they're conflating that with actual Christianity. And then in other cases, I might agree with them on the things that they see as abuses, critiques they might have of evangelical culture. But it all seems to be kind of all tied up together. So classically understood, evangelical meant, uh, in, in, in fact, it was famously uh, summarized as, and I, I'm going to do this off the top of my head, so I hope I'll get this right, uh, but as a, an emphasis on personal conversion, the Bible as the, the authoritative source of God's revealed word, um, evangelism, so they, they uh, evangelism, the cross as central, and then there's one more I can't remember. But if that's the word evangelical, then I would say, yes, I'm an evangelical. I, I think those are the right emphasis, right? That's, that protects historic Christianity. However, most people today, including those in the deconstruction movement, when they hear the word evangelical, they see MAGA hats, gun lockers. They see this kind of real right-wing political ideology that seems to be conflated with those other things. And so uh, even interestingly, with some of the studies they've done of evangelical beliefs, people were allowed to self-identify as evangelical. So there was this broad spectrum of beliefs even among evangelicals. So that's just an interesting conversation 
to have even about the word evangelicals. When people say ex-evangelical, what does that actually mean? Does that mean that you don't like the the political emphasis, or does that mean you don't believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Because it could mean either or both. And we're going to see some of that in this letter that I'm going to read. So if you've just joined us, I'm reading a letter that was handed to me from a concerned, loving father who came up to me after I was speaking at a conference, and he handed me this paper, and he said, use this however you think it might help people. And after I'd written this whole book on deconstruction and I read this this son's letter to his dad, I thought, this just nails it. This really nails where most of the deconstruction stories that I've heard are coming from. And many of you, again, are— uh, in relationships with loved ones and friends who are in deconstruction, and maybe those conversations don't always go well. And so hopefully we'll get into some advice for those types of conversations. But we're going to do some questions at the end. So if you have a question, please write the word QUESTION in all caps, and then write your question, and I'll try to go through them in order if I can here and uh, at the end. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to read about half of this letter and then I'm going to talk through, I'm not going to be able to get to all of the points, but there are some of these points that I've done podcasts on or I have videos about, so I'll, I'll refer you to those, but I'd like to, to specifically address a few of these. So I'm going to read about half of it, talk about a few, and then read a little bit more. Okay, so this is the letter from the deconstruction, deconstructed son. He said, hey, you wanted to hear my biggest issues. And the first one is that evangelicalism uses Christianity to control people into a political agenda that is immoral. His second point, Christians rejecting the authorities of other religions isn't logically sensible. His third point, evangelicals' denial of scientific facts holds back society. His fourth point, evangelicals put the Bible in the position of God when that is straight idolatry. God is not limited to the Bible. And his fifth point, evangelicals' misreading of the scriptures as historical facts, which cannot be backed up scientifically, creation, the flood, the exodus, the resurrection, etc. He continues, the countless errors and contradictions found in the Bible. Faith being above evidence, people have a misunderstanding of what faith is. Christians having a misunderstanding of what the gospel was. It's not Jesus dying for our sins according to Jesus. We're going to talk about that one specifically. And finally, he his point is that the idea that Jesus is going to return one day to save all Christians isn't true. Either he isn't coming or he already has. Now, I just want to make a general statement about some of these. Um, first of all, I just commend this father and this son for keeping their relationship going. Uh, it's not always the case that people are allowed to remain in the lives of someone who is in deconstruction. And I think this is just so sweet and heartwarming that this son would write his biggest issues to give to his dad and that his dad, you know, wants to address and, and have conversations about these things. And so here are just some general thoughts. I'm noticing here that several of these points, I would say, just about all of the ones that I just read, none of those defeat Christianity. Um, and here's what I mean. This first one, evangelicalism, evangelicalism uses Christianity to control people into a political agenda that is immoral. That may be true in some spaces. I'm sure it is. Um, but even if it was true across the board, 
even if evangelicalism across the board used Christianity to control people into a political agenda that is immoral, that wouldn't defeat Christianity. That would just say whatever this movement is that's using Christianity is, is you know, using Christianity to do wrong things, but it doesn't defeat Christianity. And here's something I'd really like for us to keep at the forefront of this conversation. Christianity stands or falls based on the resurrection of Jesus being a real historical fact. And, and that's important to start with because that's going to relate with several of the points that are on this list. The Apostle Paul said that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. And so if Christ was raised from the dead, then there is this story of salvation. There is the offer of repentance and trusting in Christ and being reconciled to a holy God. But if Christ was not resurrected, then Christianity is false. And so if the resurrection is true, then even if evangelicalism did use Christianity to control people, that would just make that false, not Christianity, if the resurrection is true. But I want to bring something else out in this first point. I'll read it again. Letter from a Deconstructed Son. He said, evangelicalism uses Christianity to control people into a political agenda. Now notice the words that come next. That is immoral. So I think a good question for this father to ask his son, or maybe for you to ask a friend of yours who's in deconstruction, is I noticed that there's this word immoral in there. That assumes that there is a right and wrong. That assumes that there is in some objective way. It's not just opinion about what's immoral, because obviously the, the statement that's being made is that there is this objective reality when it comes to morality. And whatever this is, you know, the evangelicals are doing goes against it. So the question would be, by what standard do you know what's moral or immoral? And no matter what the answer is, if it's, well, you know, evolution, and we kind of come to it together as a society, well, you're still talking about kind of just whatever the greatest numbers agree upon. And that can't be right, because back in World War II, in Germany, pretty much everybody thought that it was moral and it, it was good and morally good to exterminate Jews and those who had um, handicaps and things like that. So that can't be right. So there has to be a higher standard we're appealing to or else it is just opinion. And if it is just opinion, then it's just whoever has the most power to put their opinion of what's moral or immoral into place. And so I think that's a really good question to get people thinking. It, you're saying that this is immoral. I, and you could even say, I might even agree with you. But by what standard do you say what's moral or immoral? Let's move on to this second point here. This, we're talking about a letter from a deconstructed son to his father. And he said, this is another one of my biggest issues. Christians rejecting the authorities of other religions isn't logically sensible. Well, my response to that might be that every religion rejects the authority of at least Christianity, and here's why. Because Christianity makes claims about reality, and it actually makes exclusive claims. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so that that statement in of itself claims exclusivity. You have to go through Christ to get to God. So if another religion says, well, that's not true, you can do it these other ways, well, they're rejecting the authority of Christianity. 
So everybody does that. Everybody rejects the authority of other religions, especially other religions rejecting the authority of Christianity. What would not, what, in my opinion, what would actually not be logically sensible would be to say Christianity can be true and Islam can be true. And here's why. You know, if you, th if you think about Islam and Christianity, there's a lot of commonalities. There's a lot of similar beliefs when it comes to Jesus. Both Islam and Christianity believes that Jesus was a real person. Both Islam and Christianity teach that Jesus was a prophet, that he was a great man, uh, that he's coming again. But Islam teaches that Jesus never died. Whereas Christianity, remember, stands or falls based on the resurrection of Jesus being a real event. So if you don't have a death, you don't have a resurrection. And according to the Apostle Paul, if you don't have a resurrection, Christianity is false. So if, if Islam is true, is, is correct about Christ, that makes the entire belief system of Christianity false. But if Christianity is true, it makes every other belief system false because Christianity claims that exclusivity. So there's really not room for relativism when it comes to religion, especially when it comes to the claims of Christianity. Because if Christianity is true, it's true for everyone, and that means it has eternal consequences for everyone. So I think what would actually be logically unsensible would be to say that every religion is authoritative because they contradict one another. Sure, they have things in common. Almost every religion has some type of teaching of being good to other people, uh, the golden rule, something like that. But at their core, at their most fundamental level, they all contradict one another. And they can't all be right. That would, that would be illogical. That would actually be illogical. That would be like saying, rejecting the authority of Anybody who wants to say two plus two equals whatever would be unsensible. No, it would actually be unsensible, logically, to respect the authority of everybody who says two plus two equals five or six or seven or eight. Two plus two equals four. And it's not small-minded or intolerant to say, I don't respect the authority of somebody just because they think it's five or six. Hope that makes sense. All right, this next point, evangelicals' denial of scientific facts— holds back society. Okay, again, notice that even if that was true, it doesn't defeat Christianity. If, if there was a group of Christians that denied scientific facts, that wouldn't defeat the resurrection of Jesus, right? But I actually would argue that it's not evangelicals that are denying scientific facts. It's our culture at large right now. Our culture at large is denying um, the scientific facts as they would relate to the unborn, that you are talking about from the moment of conception, scientifically, you're talking about a living human being. And um, you're talking about a society that denies the scientific biological facts of, the, of male and female. Um, so there's quite a bit of science denying in our culture right now. And in my view on those topics, it would be the Christians that are actually have science on our side with those things. All right, let's look at this next one, talking about a letter from a deconstructed son. Evangelicals put the Bible in the position of God when that is straight idolatry. God is not limited to the Bible. Now, I've done quite a bit of content on this type of sentiment. In fact, I have a live stream on Instagram uh, that walks through a graphic meme that was put out a few months ago by a progressive Christian about this. And we've also talking, talked about this on the Unshaken Faith podcast, but I'll just say this very briefly about this point. Um, putting, trusting in the Bible as God's authoritative, inerrant word 
is not the same as worshiping the Bible like we would worship God, because the Bible is God's word. And so that goes hand in hand. Our approach to the Bible being the authoritative God word, something we want to obey, something we want to learn, um, it's it's God's word. It's God-breathed. And so obeying the Bible is the same as obeying God. It doesn't mean we worship the Bible. We worship God, but we want to know what he has said. And so what this actually does is there's a, a fallacy called the false dilemma. And what that does is it presents only two sides of an issue when there's actually more sides available. So you actually can hold the Bible as God's inerrant authoritative word and worship God. They're not in contradiction to one another. And that was certainly Jesus' view. Jesus went around quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, and over and over and over again, when he quoted from those scriptures, he called them the word of God, the command of God. And um, the living word certainly didn't see any contradiction with viewing the written word in that way. In fact, so so powerfully in Matthew 4, when we see the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness after he's been fasting for 40 days and nights, and the devil comes to him and says, if you're really the son of God, turn this stone to bread. And Jesus, I, I love to do this with audiences when I speak is just close your eyes and do a thought experiment. Imagine you are God, right? Jesus, not you, but Jesus, Jesus is God. I can think of two or three different ways that he could fight temptation as God himself. He could have just spoken the word. He's the living word. He could have just spoken the word and authoritatively dismissed the devil. He could have called down a legion of angels, but he appealed to the written word, the authority of the written word to fight that temptation in the wilderness. And that is a powerful example for us to follow, that Jesus held the written word in that high of esteem, that that's what he appealed to when he was fighting temptation in the wilderness. But again, I've got other content on that. I'll, I'll direct you to that. All right, the next one. Evangelicals' misreading of the scriptures as historical facts cannot be backed up scientifically. And specifically, he mentions creation, the flood, exodus, and resurrection. Well, I just disagree with this. I think that there is really compelling evidence more and more uh, surrounding the exodus. Uh, there's some really interesting information out there. One of the reasons that archaeologists have um, said that there's no evidence is, is many archaeologists believe the dating has been off. And when you put the date in the right place, there's actually all sorts of evidence for that. I actually have a podcast in the archives with Dr. Jeremiah Johnston where we talked about that a little bit. Um, and as far as, well, creation, the evidence of creation is all around you. It, think, think about where it, it all started, okay? Let's even say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Secular scientists might call that the Big Bang, okay? Bang. Something caused the universe to pop into existence out of nothing. Because if there, if nothing doesn't come turn into something. So the universe burst into existence out of nothing. That kind of sounds like a miracle. So it, at some point, when it comes to creation, pick your miracle. Either nothing caused something to come out of nothing or something caused something to come out of nothing. And I think it makes a lot more scientific uh, sense to conclude that the universe had a cause. And if it had a cause, that cause would have to be outside of the universe. It would have to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, because it would be causing space, time, and, and matter to be coming into existence at the same time. I also would argue that it would have to be a personal being, an intelligent 
being, an intelligent cause, because it would have to make decisions. And then you see the design in the universe. I think there's much more compelling scientific evidence for that than just something coming out of nothing from nothing and nowhere. Moving on to the next one. This is Letters from a Deconstructed Son, His Biggest Issues with Christianity. Uh, the countless errors and contradictions found in the Bible. This is a big one for people in the deconstruction movement. Uh, I think it's always important if somebody brings up things like this is to ask them for a little more detail because when people talk about errors in the Bible, they might be talking about errors in the transmission of the manuscripts or they might be actually talking about what they perceive to be factual errors in the text itself. So it's always good to get a good idea of which one they're talking about. Uh, personally, I don't think there are any unresolvable contradictions in the Bible. I think they can—in fact, I've got an article on my website. Uh, I think it's 17 things—let me look it up because I think, I think it's worth taking a look at. So a lot of people make some false assumptions about what we're talking about when we say the Bible is without error. Um, because some of the things that we're not saying— Okay, here it is. It's 17 mistakes you might be making if you think the Bible has errors. And this is my summary of the introduction uh, to the book, Making Sense of Bible Difficulties, and that's by Geisler and Howe. So, um, you know, if you're assuming there's contradictions, you might be assuming that the unexplained is not explainable, right? Um, when scientists come across an anomaly or an unexplained phenomenon, they don't just throw up their hands in defeat and say, well, I, you know, it must be a contradiction. Um, but the same thing applies to the Bible, right? Just because it's not explained doesn't mean it's not explainable. I'll just walk through some of these points very quickly. You might also be presuming the Bible guilty until it's proven innocent, right? You might be confusing the fallible interpretations of people because people have wrong interpretations, but you might be confusing that with infallible revelation. Um, you might be misunderstanding the context. Um, so there, there's about 17 things we walked through in that article. I, I would urge you to go look at that. But if someone is talking about the text transmission, I do also have a couple of podcasts on this where we talk about how the Bible was copied. And it is true that of the 5,000 or so manuscripts we have of the New Testament in Greek, there are hundreds of thousands of variations between those different manuscripts. Um, I mean, there's no, there's no denying that. That's no secret, right? But that's because the manuscripts were copied by hand by people. And so when we're talking about those types of—I don't call them errors, I, they're variants, they're variations—the vast majority of those variations don't affect the meaning. Even skeptical scholars will tell you that. Uh, Bart Ehrman has admitted this, that the vast majority of those variations between the manuscripts do not affect the meaning of the text at all. So we're talking about things like a word order switch, Jesus Christ, maybe another manuscript says Christ Jesus, different spellings of different words, maybe a word is missing. Uh, so th these, these variations do not hinder, for the most part, scholars' ability to know what the original text said. In fact, it's all those variations when they put them all together that help them determine the original wording because we don't have any of those original manuscripts anymore. Now, there is a small percentage of 
of variations where scholars aren't sure. You, you know, it, one example is when the disciples come to Jesus and they say this kind, they couldn't cast out the demons. And Jesus says this kind only comes out by, and some of your Bibles will say fasting, and some of your Bibles will say fasting and prayer. And that's because of the two different uh, main text traditions. Scholars aren't sure which is the original, if it's just fasting or fasting, uh, prayer and fasting. So there are a few like that. I've got, again, some articles on my website about those. I write about that in my book, Another Gospel. But, but here's kind of how I would just big picture that question. Again, this is a deconstructed son. His issue with Christianity is the countless errors and contradictions found in the Bible. Again, let's bring it back to the resurrection. If the resurrection happened, if the resurrection is true, then Christianity is true. Even if there are, you know, I, I don't believe there are errors in the Bible or contradictions, but even if there were, the resurrection still happened and Christianity would still be true. And interestingly, there are about 10 non-Christian historical sources written within about 150 years of Jesus' life from which you can deduce that the resurrection actually happened. I'm not, I'm not saying you can prove it from that. But I'm saying you could conclude reasonably that the resurrection happened. Uh, just from non-Christian history within 150 years of Jesus' life, you can read about Jesus as a historical person. You can know that he had a brother named James. There was darkness and, earth, uh, darkness and an earthquake at his crucifixion, that he was known to be a wonder worker, that he was known to be virtuous, that his closest followers believed they saw him alive after he was dead and were willing to be tortured and go to their deaths, maintaining that testimony to be true. That's powerful evidence that the resurrection of Jesus actually did happen. Uh, again, also from those non-Christian sources, you could uh, read about Jesus being crucified by Pontius Pilate. So historical uh, facts surrounding the resurrection are very, are really quite strong. And it's really just a matter of what you do with that evidence. What do you, what do you think happened? If, if all of those facts are true, how do you explain it? And I think the most reasonable explanation is that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. So again, if the resurrection is true, Christianity is true, then we can talk about the Bible. And, it, and when it comes to those variations, those hundreds of thousands of variations, even, again, skeptical scholar Bart Ehrman will tell you that there aren't any of those variations that would call into question a core Christian doctrine or a core point of the gospel. So in my view, if someone is going to reject Christianity because of that, I think there's more going on. And that, that can be what's going on in some of these, as I think we're going to see as we continue with this letter. Okay, moving on. The deconstructed son wrote a letter to his father, Biggest Issues with Christianity. This is one I actually agree with him 100%. He said, faith being above evidence. People have a misunderstanding of what faith is. I actually agree with him. I think a lot of Christians misunderstand what faith is. In fact, faith, according to atheists, is just kind of closing your eyes and believing despite there being no evidence for what you believe. Well, that's not at all what the Bible is talking about when it talks about faith. The word faith in English is translated from a Greek word that largely means trust, like an active type of trust. So I think about it this way. When I go, you know, let's say I have to go to another state. I'm probably going to get on an airplane to go there. And it's one thing for me to believe that the airplane will get me to my destination. It's one thing for me to 
believe that the pilot is trained, that the mechanics have all done their jobs well, that it's been designed by the engineers properly. And so it's one thing for me to believe a bunch of propositions, but I haven't put active trust in that belief till I get on the plane myself. And I say, okay, I'm getting on the plane. And that's really more what biblical faith is. It's not just um, you know, mustering up belief despite the lack of evidence. I think that the Bible gives us so many examples of faith being informed by evidence. I think John the Baptist is a great example of this. This story in the Bible puzzles me because if you think about John, this is a this is a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. This is a man who encountered the Trinity with all of his senses. He was um, he baptized the Son of God with his hands. He heard the voice of the Father saying, "This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased," and he saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. Who of us can say that? Which one of us can say that we had that much evidence, right? Well, then at the end of his life, when he's uh, in prison, uh, Herod had him in prison. It appears from the text that he really encountered some significant doubt. He sent his followers to Jesus to say, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus' response to John is what's so fascinating to me because Jesus doesn't shame him for a lack of faith. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't approach faith as if, you know, why would you doubt, John? Why don't you just read your Bible? Or No, Jesus actually offered him evidence. He said, go back and tell him the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see. And so Jesus was referencing the multitude of evidence that he had given John, but he was also referencing a prophecy he knew that John would understand about the Messiah. So Jesus responded so tenderly to John with evidence. Uh, and I think that's a great way to think about our faith. I think our faith should be based on evidence. And it's not a blind faith. I think a blind leap in the dark is a very bad idea because you might be leaping off a cliff or you might be leaping into something that's completely false. I think we need to test. The Bible actually tells us to do this, test all things. Uh, be like Bereans. We, we need to be a little bit skeptical, healthy skepticism, not hyper-skepticism. But we do need to question things. I think that's very biblical. That's very important. So I might agree with this deconstructed son on this point. I think people do have a misunderstanding of what faith is. Okay, this is the last one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk through. Christians having a misunderstanding of what the gospel was. And he says, it's not Jesus dying for our sins according to Jesus. And to that one, I would beg to differ. I would beg to differ that that's not the heart of the gospel as Jesus taught it. Here's what I mean. We're all familiar with the scene in the upper room the night before Jesus was betrayed. Of course, we think of this as the time when communion was instituted, do this in remembrance of me. But there's another thing that happens there in that, in that scene that night. But before I tell you what that is, I want to read to you something from the prophet Isaiah. This is a prophecy that Isaiah wrote long before Jesus walked the earth. And theologians refer to this as the suffering servant passage. And remember, this is in the context of this um, deconstructed son telling his father, the gospel is not Jesus dying for our sins, according to Jesus. Well, let's look. What did Jesus think he was doing on the cross? What, what did he have to say about it? It's an important question. It's a good question. I'm glad this deconstructed son is bringing this question up. And I think it's very clear that Jesus did believe, or I should say, 
course, he knows, <laughs> but he taught that he died on the cross for our sins. I, I'm going to tell you why, but I want to read a few passages from Isaiah 53 first. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, the word chastisement has to do with punishment. So whoever this suffering servant is, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It goes on, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So whoever the suffering servant is, God lays the iniquity of us all on the suffering servant. It's the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Accounted righteous, that's payment language, accounting language. Uh, this righteous one will make, his righteousness will be put into the account of many. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, right? This is, whoever this is, has borne the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, in Luke 22, later after he institutes communion, Jesus says this, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And then Jesus says, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. So Jesus references Isaiah 53 that has language all over the place of the sins of the world being put on this suffering servant, bearing the iniquity of us all, the chastisement, the punishment, his righteousness being put this as a payment into someone else's account. Jesus says, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. That's really powerful statement in my, in my book that what Jesus was saying is that he was dying on the cross for our sins, right? And, and, and if we need more, just think about when he instituted communion. Likewise, the cup, this is Luke twenty two twenty. 20. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, what would that mean to them? New covenant would only make sense within the context of an old covenant. Well, what was the old covenant? And what would blood, how would blood be involved with the old covenant? Well, in the old covenant, Yahweh instituted a sacrificial system with Israel to make atonement for sin. So there was the sin offering and the guilt offering. The guilt offering was to expunge the guilt of sin. The sin offering was to cleanse and uh, to cleanse you from your sin. And in those sacrifices, an animal would be brought, a lamb, a goat, and the hand of the person would be placed on the animal to signify a substitution happening. Then the animal would be slaughtered, the blood poured out on the side of the altar. And together, these sacrifices made the atoning sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, this is the new covenant now in my blood. So it's as if he's saying, I am the final sacrifice. And of course, the, the New Testament goes on to declare that quite plainly. But as far as it being Jesus' words, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, my blood now is this new covenant. And I, I think about John the Baptist, the first prophet of the New Testament. When he sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a reference to that old covenant, that sacrificial system. So I do think that according to Jesus, the heart of the gospel message is Jesus dying for our sins according to Jesus. So having these conversations, maybe that's something that we can bring up with 
people we have relationship with that might be in deconstruction. Now, I'm going to give some advice about um, how, you know, these conversations can go in a moment, but I do want to take a moment here and talk about our sponsor for today, and that's Good Ranchers. Uh, I talk about Good Ranchers all the time. We eat Good Ranchers almost every single day. So it's almost Father's Day, and what a great gift for your dad. We're getting into grilling season. This is high-quality, all-American meat shipped straight to his door. And this is stuff you really can't get at the store. It's all-American grown and harvested. And you're going to get $30 off the best Father's Day gift you can give. If you go to GoodRanchers.com, use my code ELISA. That's going to give you $30 off your first box. Couple more reasons you definitely want to subscribe to this monthly meat delivery service to your home. Uh, you're gonna lock in your price for two years. Guys, I wish I was paying for my groceries the same price I was paying two years ago. But as you know, inflation has just made everything go crazy. But what I also love about Good Ranchers is that they give away a lot of uh, the product that they make. So. What you have, um, let me scroll up here. I want to get this number right. So they donate 10 meals for every box ordered. That's huge. And so over the course of them giving back, they've donated over a million meals to Americans in need. So go to GoodRanchers.com. Use my code, Alisa, for $30 off. Great Father's Day gift. Make sure you take advantage of that. All right. So want to end with some advice, and then I'll take a few questions. It's really important to understand that in the deconstruction movement, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but in the deconstruction movement, very often, because it's very postmodern, it's very subjective, it's very relative to each person, they've probably already decided that you are a toxic person, that Christianity is toxic. They've certainly decided that. It's not just that they've decided Christianity is untrue. It's that Christianity is harmful, that it's toxic. It, it hurts people. And so it's going to be very difficult for you to establish yourself as a safe person in their lives because the impetus to disconnect from their church family and even their biological family often is very strong in the deconstruction movement. So my advice would be to, you know, in phase one of this all happening, that's really not the time to try to fix their theology over a coffee date, right? Love them, try to stay in their life live the beauty of the gospel out in front of them. Now, if you have a relationship like this man, this precious man does with his son who they're trying, they're trying to communicate. And I just love that. I love that this father's heart, he kept this paper, he gave it to me. He wants to be able to have discussions with his son. I love that. I praise God for that. But not everybody listening to this today has that opportunity. You may, you may have been cut out of your loved one's life who is in deconstruction. And if that's the case, take this take this time to pray. Take this time to pray for your loved one and um, do little things that you can to stay in their life if you can. And then if you do have an open door of conversation, asking really great questions, really seeking to understand where they're coming from, where, you know, what were the triggers? What, what brought them to this point? And just listen and try to understand. And again, live the beauty of the gospel out in front of them is a great way um, to start kind of getting those conversations going. Okay, I'm going to go to questions here. Um, okay, um, I've just got one. Really, guys? Let's see. Let me see if, it, if the queue—oh, there's more here. Okay. Um, let's see here.
Okay, let me just start here. Question, when Jesus taught forgiveness will end our sins, why would he say that sacrifice does that? Okay, so I guess what you may, okay, so there's some more clarification on this question. When Jesus taught forgiveness will end our sins, why need sacrifice? If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Right, so, okay, there is a podcast I have back in the archives with Clark Bates, and I think it's like the five most misunderstood verses, and we actually talk about this verse in that uh, podcast. But I would I would say this. Jesus didn't teach that forgiveness will end our sins. We're still going to sin. We are still, as Christians that are becoming more and more like Christ through this process of sanctification for the rest of our lives, we are still going to sin on this side of heaven. Now, one day when we're face to face, that our, our sin will be ended. There will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. And in the Old Testament, so sacrifice— um, it's Jay Sklar is a great Old Testament scholar that wrote this beautiful commentary on Leviticus. And he wrote that the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was like God writing a check. I'm going to actually look this up because I want to read the quote because it's so good. Because it really explains that when they would make these sacrifices, it wasn't the, the blood of the bull and the goat that literally was cleansing their sin. It was like God writing a check. Let me Let me look this up if I can find this pretty quickly. Um, okay, it's downloading. I don't know how long that's going to take. Um, so it's as if Jesus cashed the check that was written back in the Old Testament system. And so I think that this is Jesus' heart. He does desire mercy, not sacrifice. But that was the system that Yahweh instituted with Israel at that time. Okay, um, just one—oh, okay— Okay, I'm, I'm not seeing questions here. That's Q. Okay. Well, guys, I guess that's all the questions. Just one. Okay. Well, this is not downloading fast, so I tell you what I'm going to do, Robert. Um, I will address this question when I can—I want you to read this quote because it's so good. Um, maybe the next podcast, I'll address it at the beginning and read the quote and answer the question more thoroughly because it is a really good question, and it is hard to understand— uh, a lot of times what um, some of these things are talking about. But I do recommend Jay Sklar's uh, commentary on Leviticus where he goes really deep into this question. But I'll address it on the next podcast, and I thank you for that question. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for lis uh, for watching and for listening today. As always, if you're looking for higher-level education, SES is uh, where I study. I love Southern Evangelical Seminary. You can go to ses.edu slash Elisa and download a free ebook there. They're one of the sponsors of the podcast. They helped shepherd me through my faith crisis. I love Southern Evangelical Seminary. And in the meantime, as we pursue Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time.